you know, the factors that contribute to violence exist across the planet. But the reason for our gun violence in this country and the rates at which they happen or it occurs is because it's so easy to get your hand on a gun. So it's not about the guns themselves. Pushing back on guns is not really the approach to take. It, it doesn't work. But we do need to figure out how to make guns safer and really work to reduce the incidence of people getting their hands on guns who are just not, not safe or not in a good place. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Bereston. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. And we're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at Massachusetts General Hospital. Today, we're going to talk about a pretty heavy topic, and that's about gun violence on our young people. The impact of exposure to gun violence has been an issue for decades, and one that hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. To add on to that, in the more recent years, the increasing gun violence and mass shootings we're seeing in communities across the country has gotten worse. It all really feels scary and even paralyzing, not just for our kids, but for us as adults as well and parents. Not to mention that um, we're seeing a lot more in the digital news and social media uh, and the safety preparation that communities take now. Now, I'm thinking of, this, the, of how traumatic the lockdown drills are in schools, uh, responding heavily to swatting uh, or prank calls, which has been increasing. I think there were like over 380 this year, whereas uh, so far since January, it, 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 it's, it's, it's scary. Uh, it's a lot to manage emotionally. Many kids are getting scared to go to concerts, to go to malls, um, to go to school. And the number of mass shootings seems to be an everyday occurrence. Now we have a special guest today to help us with this really difficult conversation. Dr. Gretchen Philopoulos is a clinical psychologist at MGH. Uh, Dr. Philopoulos specializes in neuropsychological and psychological assessment uh, for kids, adolescents, and young adults. And among her other roles, roles, she's assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School and the and the education and training lead for the MGH uh, for gun violence prevention. I might also add that she's contributed more than once to the Clay Center, Clay Center website. In fact, we did it. We have a blog that you that you wrote uh, for us. So welcome, Gretchen. Thank you so much. Uh, so nice to be here. Though I I do have to say I look forward to the day that these conversations aren't necessary. But um, for now, um, wonderful to have the chance to talk about it together. So before we get into the discussion, can you tell us a little bit about um, your role in the MGH Center for Gun Violence Prevention and and your interest in, in gun safety measures? Sure. Um, well, I would say my, my interest really probably um, was sparked, I guess for lack of a better word, um, in 2012 with the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting. Um, you know, at that point, I'm a mom of five. And at that point, I had some of my kids were elementary school age. Um, of course, being a child psychologist, this hit, you know, hit home in terms of um, the impact I was seeing on, you know, kids and families uh, reeling from that. I was also a part-time school psychologist at the time and was, of course, having to work with the staff and students on trying to process this. And I think ultimately the shooter himself um, in many, many ways resembled a lot of the kids that I work with and see for evaluation. So on all fronts, I was really alarmed by that. Um, and that, I think that really kind of tipped me over in terms of finally motivating me to do something. Um, and fortunately I was able to find at that point, the MGH 
Coalition for Gun Violence Prevention, which eventually um, received funding in 2019 to become a center. So our our mission is really sort of three tiered and my sort of three pillars, really. So research, training and education, and then community engagement. So my particular roles and interests at the center are around doing teaching and training with um, incoming residents and interns and staff who are interested in the MGB system, as well as now outside. Um, we work with Boston University grad students, and we're now consulting to hospitals nationwide. We're working with Dell Children's Hospital in Texas, helping them develop their own training and education program, basically working on bringing the conversations of firearm safety and gun violence prevention to the office, to clinical care. So training healthcare professionals on how to talk with people about gun ownership and how to store guns safely, um, as well as other measures. And um, Otherwise, the community engagement piece is, is kind of my favorite piece, too, where we do a lot of work with community partners around um, kind of building the bridge between sort of our being uh, having some of the resources, but not necessarily being credible messengers ourselves as a group of mainly white physicians and other healthcare providers, um, not necessarily being or feeling appropriate to kind of walk in and say, hey, here's what we know, here's what you should do. That's that's not cool and that doesn't work. But with community partners and building bridges in that way, we've um, we've done some really cool projects, um, which probably a whole other podcast, but um, just shouting a few out, the Peace Institute, just an outstanding organization in Boston, uh, Boston Uncornered, which is a... Um, sort of a re-entry program as well as an incarceration prevention program, um, teen empowerment, awesome group. Um, so many, many uh, programs out there, but um, that's a really kind of wonderful and exciting thing that we're doing there at the center as well. Well, we we feel so fortunate to be able to have you here with us at MGH and spend this time with us. And and I too wish that we didn't have to keep having this conversation. And it, and it is getting, it seems like harder and harder to have conversations with our young people about it um, and about safety and, and, and their anxieties around it. Um, but before we get into the emotional angle of this, which we will have to come back to, I want to start with a little bit of, I guess, background and context around why gun violence is such a huge public health issue here in America and where we're seeing it play out most, um, how it's collectively impacting our, our kids in our communities. Sure. So, you know, it's interesting because, um, and Jean and I have talked about this before, where, you know, the the causes of gun violence get sort of, um, you know, there's there's various sort of theories um, and not any one of them is necessarily wrong, but you'll hear like, oh, it's the mental health crisis in our country or it's, um, you know, it's it's racism. It's an, an equity of resources or access to resources. It's lack of opportunity, lack of education, various, various um, theories like that. But ultimately, Every place internationally, those things are are going on, right? Those those factors exist pretty much everywhere. What's the difference here? Because this is a uniquely American problem. Um, it's it's amazing the extent to which our numbers um, outdo it's as if it were a competition. Um, other similar countries in terms of you know sort of uh, socioeconomic status and other factors, and really the the big issue, the big thing is easy access to guns. So we have roughly 400 million guns in our country, and we have 328 million people. So we have more guns than people, which is a huge problem. Um, and, and so, you know, the factors that contribute to violence exist across the planet. 
But the reason for our gun violence in this country and the rates at which they happen or it occurs is because it's so easy to get your hand on a gun. So it's not about the guns themselves. Pushing back on guns is not really the approach to take. It, it doesn't work. Guns are part of the American culture. They're in our constitution in terms of having a right to own them. But we do need to figure out how to make guns safer and keep them in the hands of responsible gun owners and keep them safe when they're in households and really work to reduce the incidence of people getting their hands on guns who are just not not safe or not in a good place um, to have one. So that's kind of the the angle. We we work from a harm reduction perspective or like to talk about it that way. But yeah. So to take that uh to dive a little deeper dive into that, um, you know, you mentioned that there are many causes like the people blame, you know, like mental health, um, social media. Uh so what about what about um, and 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 I, I I totally agree that if you look at the charts, I mean the number of guns we have compared to any other country in the world is just unbelievably uh, huge. Uh, but what what about the phenomena of copycat phenomena at, through social media? I mean we we determined I think fairly substantially that among teenagers that when there's a sensationalized suicide, either with a celebrity or in a narrative that there's a two week window of a copycat phenomenon. And I know that a lot of folks who are dealing with violence, homicides in particular, have wondered about whether or not a similar process occurs with guns. Could it be that 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 there's copycat phenomena analogous to suicide and easy access, and that's a bad formula? Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, social media has made it so much easier to learn about and kind of um, hyper-focus on uh, a mass shooting, for example, so that the those who might be predisposed to getting overstimulated or wanting, you know, to sort of, um, um, I don't know, get the attention, whatever, whatever would be motivating that person. It's very easy to do what they call siloing now, which is just becoming fully immersed in the media coverage and the backstories and the victim stories that surround a mass shooting. And so um, it would be easy for someone to sort of feed that um, impulse or that urge with all of the um, exposure that these events um, receive. And, you know, the interesting fact is that mass shootings, including school shootings, really, they represent only 1% of the gun violence in our country. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I think, you know, in, in sort of talking about this, it's really important to remind our kids and ourselves, because it is terrifying when you see the news and there are there's, you know, at least one mass shooting every day. Right. Not all of them get um, received coverage. But when you think about it statistically, it really does represent a very, very small threat. It, it's hard to see it that way. Where the real threat lies, believe it or not, is the risk of gun gun related deaths due to suicide. So this kind of brings us back to, okay, we need to make sure that if we do have a gun in the house, that it is safely stored because most people who attempt suicide are getting their gun from their home. So that's the thing we really, you know, in terms of you know, linking firearms to suicide and knowing that those who attempt suicide with a gun will end up dying 90 plus percent of the time. And those who survive usually aren't in any place to accept intervention or treatment that we really need to focus on, obviously, the mental health aspect of that. But from a very sort of practical perspective, making sure a gun in the home is stored 
unloaded and stored and locked in a separate place and the ammunition stored and locked separately um, is sort of the ideal so that, you know, we're minimizing the chances of someone getting a hold of that gun on impulse. Um, that's that's something to really kind of emphasize. I mean, the, the main, the primary way in which people attempt suicide is by intentional overdose. So that is the most common way in which people attempt it, but the most lethal can now it continues to be guns. And so, and, and suicide by gun represents 50 to 60%, depending on the year of all firearm related deaths in our country, pretty consistently between 50 and 60% every year. So we have around you know 50,000 deaths a year due to firearms of which at least half to two thirds are are related to suicide. So higher risk populations include, you know, more and more kids and more and more kids in communities of color. The rates for young black men and, and girls, boys and girls, and young uh, boys and girls in Latina population, the risk of um, suicide, um, and particularly via handgun is or be, via gun is is increasing. So those are scary numbers, and I know as parents that's scary. So. Um, you know, it's important to it kind of circles back to the importance of talking with our kids, um, being present and involved, not in a helicopter parent way, but in a way that allows them to know you're there for them and that you, you know, will listen and um, will help in any way you can. What about the statistics well, on on handguns on, on, on I'm sorry, on um, on homicides and particularly gang gang violence, because that used to be number one cause of death among African-American youth, 14 to 24 or something. Yep. Uh, uh, is that still the case that access to mm -hmm. firearms among gangs uh, is, is, is a major cause of death? Well, it, it, gangs are a part of that, but but yes, it continues, the, the statistic continues that the number one cause of death for black men, males, youth and adult males in our country is gun violence. So one to 2% might be, so one to 2% of gun violence related deaths are police shootings. Now, certainly those aren't all black men or black boys, but quite a high percentage of those are. Um, certainly there are, there is city related, street related violence, may not all be gang related, but that certainly does account for a high percentage of those homicides. Um, but, but yeah, and, and now, as I mentioned before, a portion of those, um, those statistics are now related to suicide. Um, so, but yes, absolutely. That's a stat that's been um, present for, you know, a number of years that, that black men, black young men and adult men are at much greater risk. I think black men are 10 times more likely to be killed by a gun than um, other, other men in our country. So, yeah. One huge question that I think is at the top of so many parents' minds, and, and it's a really a raw emotional one, and it brings me back to the earlier kind of comment that I made about how the heck are we supposed to have these conversations with our youngsters? Um, how are we supposed to talk to them about uh, the threats in the community and, and at school and in kind of public places such as the supermarket and the mall when it really does feel so pervasive, and I know it really, in the grand scheme of things, it's still such a rare occurrence, but with media and the news and and, and and online, it feels like it's happening all the time. So how are we supposed to kind of reassure our kids about their safety in a world that even to us as the adults and the parents feels unsafe and insecure? Right. I know that's a, 
not the easiest question, but. Right. No, no. And, you know, and there's not a one size fits all response because very unfortunately, not all communities have the same level of gun violence going on. So, for example, right in Boston, there are communities that have gun gunshots fired every day. So you have kids, you know, if not witnessing gun violence, you have them exposed to gun violence on a regular basis. Right. And, you know, the ramifications of that are huge and, and the impact on learn, learning, let alone a general sense of well-being and security and safety is is enormous. So the ability for parents of those kids to reassure them that you're safe, nothing's going to happen, school shootings are rare. You know, that's something we can generally speak to uniformly as parents in terms of the rarity of a school shooting, but in terms of the rarity of gun violence in an everyday, on an everyday basis or in our community, that has to be acknowledged in in different ways in different communities. And, you know, I, I wish there were different different ways in which we were able to advise our kids. But um, I I know my friend who um, her family lives in one of those communities and said she had to tell her kid every day, make sure you keep your hands out of your pockets. You don't put your hood up on your hoodie. You, you know, you don't make eye contact unless you know the person, Um, you know, rules that just to me, it's, it's tragic and sad, but yet those are the street rules. And, um, you know, another mom in the community, make sure she drives her kid everywhere possible. She's like, I don't want him walking, that walking around the street is a risk factor in and of itself. Um, So that's the tricky part, because we wish we could say, don't worry, it's not going to happen to you. And and in some communities, for the most part, we are able to say that. But in others, no, it's not the case. And so, you know, this is where we hope that we here in Boston in particular start using more of the community violence intervention programs that have been piloted in Chicago and in California and have been really successful. And we do have several. We have ROCA, which is amazing. Um, Some of the other programs I mentioned before in terms of um, like Boston Uncornered and Teen Empowerment. But we really, we could use more because as you probably noticed, turning on the news every single day, there's a shooting. In, in our Boston communities. Um, so it, it is not easy being a parent these days, period, but it's particularly challenging being a parent in communities of color. So um, I, I wish I had all the answers, but yeah. No, and that is helpful and also reassuring because it is the reality that, you know, often parents of color have to have very different conversations with, with, with our kids about safety and about what they can and can't do. Um, and it not right, but it's what we have to do to, to do our best to keep them safe. Right. That's right. So turning to schools, um, it's where kids spend most of their time. Uh, what should we really, what should, what should we realistically be expecting of our schools when it comes to gun safety uh, and the anxiety everyone's feeling around this? Not just in terms of emergency protocols of lockdown drills, but what about communicating with families, with students, with each other? Is school a place where we can have some of these conversations uh, and drills? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's what's the what would you say is the best way of kind of orchestrating what schools can be doing for both the kids, the parents, uh, and the teachers? Sure. Well, you know, I I think one thing I've really learned in in doing this work is that everything needs to be baby steps. So to come in with one big plan, overarching, sweeping, you know, um, multi-step thought out um, outline of, of how to sort of get this, get the schools on board and the, the students and the parents up to speed um, tends to be ill-received. So um, 
I think in small steps and incremental ways, we can get um, our school communities and, and the extended community um, more informed. And in the same way, I think less less anxious. So some of the things we've seen be very successful are, you know, starting with even, you know, school health and safety fairs. So we've gone and tabled at many of those where we, you know, bring information on safe gun storage. We hand out free gun locks. We bring um, information on sort of mental health services and things like that. Um, also, I think, you know, the way in which the drills are handled, we are we are working on sort of talking with schools about prep and process. So prepping the staff, the kids, um, the parents, and letting law enforcement know that you are about to run a drill the next day or, or two days from now. But the date is important because, you know, there are kids who, and before they realize it's a drill, uh, will call the cops. And that becomes what looks like a swatting. So some of the swatting incidents have actually been lockdown drills where kids have called the police and there hasn't been a gun, but there's a whole emergency response. So communication is pretty critical for, for I think, dealing with a lot of the issues that surround gun violence and cause us to be very anxious. So prepping, letting people know in advance there's going to be a lockdown drill. There actually are some really good books out there for teachers, parents, you know, guidance counselors to be reviewing with younger kids on sort of how to understand a lockdown drill. They use like superheroes and um, basically, you know, sort of some metaphor that I think de-escalates the sort of intensity a little bit while also teaching them the necessary steps and rules to follow. Um, but I think, you know, we need to let sure, let everyone know this is going to be happening without worrying about, are we losing some value to the drill by there not being spontaneity. No, we're not. We are actually working uh, toward reducing a major uh, reason there's such anxiety among our young people, uh, which are these drills. I, I mean, it's there are emerging studies coming out of, you know, looking at kids pre and post the introduction of lockdown drills and, um, you know, way, sort of getting all the other factors off the table. It looks like that is, of course, a huge piece of what's on their mind and a kind of constant worry um, that the, you know these drills kind of create for them. So we need to not only prep everybody, we also need to build in time to process. So you don't just have a lockdown drill and be like, okay, back to school, back to life. That, that doesn't work well for people. We need a space and um, some time set aside to debrief and to talk about the emotions that were stirred up. We need to ground people in the reality that this is really rare. Okay. We do fire drills two or three times a year. Have we ever had a fire in school? Almost every school will say no. All right. So we do a lockdown drill maybe twice a year. Same kind of thing applies, but we know it makes everybody feel better if we're prepared for an emergency. So giving them the facts to kind of ground them afterward, but then also, you know, walking it through and learning from the mistakes that happened and, and you know, making sure we're supporting the kids, the staff and the parents who find this really um, emotional, you know, traumatic because, you know, a lot of folks have lost people to gun violence. And this is very, for lack of a better word, triggering. So um, those are certainly some steps that schools can do. Um, there's a really big step eventually schools, um, I think, might be shifting to. Um, they're mandated in nine states right now. Um, they're called threat assessment teams, which we generally agree is a horrible name. Um, I would love them to be called community safety teams, but essentially um, it's where the school system, so relevant staff from the school system, um, providers in the community, um, uh, church leaders, and like, let's say health centers in the community, 
representatives, trustworthy um, law officials and rescue squad officials, uh, a parent group of parents, all come together and form this kind of team task force with the goal of uh, not just sort of reducing gun violence, but but almost like um, like a big safety net where everybody is kind of looking out for each other. And there is a protocol for what you do when you have concerns um, around a student with mental health concerns, a family that seems to be at risk, um, substance abuse stuff. So certainly not just related to gun violence threats, but the schools that have put these in place, the emerging research coming out is really impressive. Like 99% of the kids, parents, and staff report an increased sense of safety and security and reduced anxiety. And I think like 1% of the threats made were actually followed through on when a school community has a threat, a TAT, a threat assessment team. So, and the, the really important finding, because of course I was worried about this, um, is there sort of profiling of particular students or families when we have a threat assessment team in place in a school community. And in fact, they did not find disparities in that regard. So it isn't like there's profiling based racial profiling or, you know, particular kids are singled out for various reasons. That really doesn't seem to be occurring, at least in the ones studied. Um, but that's something to, I think, is really encouraging. Um, and there is a formal protocol that's endorsed by the FBI, the Bureau, Federal Bureau of uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but safety and something. Um, so it's endorsed by, you know, those that know the safety stuff. Um, and, and so it's it's looking pretty promising. Um, we just need to change that name. So, <laughs> you know, what about SWAT? I mean, I, I've, I've I've been concerned a little bit concerned about swatting. Um, and for the listeners that don't know, swatting are false threats of, um, uh, of gun violence, of a school shooting. Um do these do these teams actually diminish? So I mean, because swatting is like going into a theater and screaming fire, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. there's huge when, penalties for that. That which needs to be, I think, talked about constantly because I, I think if people knew how much trouble they'd be in when they get caught, not if when they get caught for doing this, it it, it is so not worth skipping your final exam to call in a gun threat. You know what I mean? It's it's not. So um, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. But it's re it's really important for us to also know, and I didn't know that this also happens as a result of lack of communication and coordination when they have these drills. And I think that is really an important part because things can happen much smoother and much safely if there's a coordination and a swatting team comes with all kinds of unpredictability and, and, and angst for, for our young people. Um, but, but that being said, we have talked a lot about conversations just in this podcast along with you. And, and, and here at the Clay Center, we are passionate and feel really strongly about uh, having conversations about all topics, because we think it is so important that we talk openly about mental health issues and what's impacting them. Um, and I think Jane mentioned earlier that she even wrote an article about how do we talk to our, our, our young people about gun violence. Um, but my question to you is, how do we talk about the other, have the other conversations with, with the other people? So not just our family, but our extended family, maybe our neighbors, our friends, um, about our differences of in terms of views as it relates to guns and gun ownership and keeping you know one another safe. How do we have those conversations? Because these are much harder to have in a way that is you know respectful, that is um, can still be passionate, but but it still needs to be um, respectful. It needs to be productive and constructive. We need to be able to listen and hear um, and respond as opposed to just being so reactive. So. Help us have those conversations. 
such a good point. And I, I think this is, you really hit on something important around the topic of guns and gun violence in our country is that it people tend to avoid them because they feel like, oh, it's so politically loaded. No, again, no pun intended. You can't get away from all of the the sort of uh, gun related terms in our in the English language. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but you, I think that's one reason people have been so afraid to engage in discussions. But as it turns out, and this is something I wish the media would cover year after year after year, when Gallup or whomever does the polling of of Americans, regardless of political affiliation, way more than less agree that gun violence is a major problem in our country. So the most recent Gallup poll, 75% of Americans said, gun violence is a major problem and a major concern to me, and I would like something done about it. Now, we may disagree on what the something done about it looks like, but the vast majority of us, regardless of where we sit on political sides, see this as a problem that we'd like some action, we'd like something done about it. So I think that's very, you, you could think of it as this is probably the most unifying issue in our country right now, is our shared concern about gun violence as a public health crisis. So that doesn't mean you can assume your neighbor or family member is going to share all your values around gun ownership or your feelings about guns. But I, I do feel like you, I, I guess I want to instill in our listeners the confidence that, wow, most people are concerned about this, want to think about solutions, and I can probably have a pretty productive conversation as long as, like you said, Kadisha, I kind of check my my biases and I, I come at this without judgment and I'm open to listening because that's the only way we will be able to move this forward. So, yeah. What, and, and what can we be talking about that will help us in our sense of safety, like what, what kind of conversations can we be having with one another around this? Well, I mean, it might sound so basic, but honestly, I go back to the safe gun storage piece, because really, if we think about the fact that most mass shootings occur in the home, like if we use this, the definition recommended by gun violence researchers and a lot of um, public health researchers, which is four or more people shot in one kind of situation or scenario. So four or more people shot in one time or one situation. If you use that definition, 61% of mass shootings occur in the home. So there we have the issue of a gun in the home stored unsafely or potentially with a gun owner who shouldn't have the gun. So I come back then, I, I circle back to making sure I mention that we in Massachusetts and also in 18 other states and the District of Columbia have what's called a red flag law in place. So say you are a family member a kid, an adult, um, or you are a former roommate, a former partner, basically, if you have any kind of meaningful relationship with a gun owner that you're concerned about in terms of his or her safety or the safety of others in that home, you can talk to the, the to somebody trustworthy at the local police department, whether it's an officer or the social work team. You can also go to the local courthouse and file what's called an ERPO, Extreme Risk Protection Order. And basically, if that's supported, if you have, you know, can basically say there is reason to be concerned and just, you know, you don't have to give a whole sort of like legal document presentation, but basically, you know, I've seen this person, for example, drinking increasingly, becoming more agitated or seeming more depressed, whatever it might be, you can file this petition and they will remove the gun from the gun owner for a period of time. And during that time, that person needs to get help. Uh, and in order to have the gun returned, 
There needs to be evidence that the person has sought treatment. There's been some intervention. They are able to be a responsible gun owner before that gun can be returned. So that's something that I think, you know, most people don't even know exist. In fact, we have a huge PR problem um, around the fact that we've had an ERPO um, law, red flag law in place since 2018. And it's so underutilized. In 2021, one of the most violent years on record, Massachusetts filed eight ERPOs versus New Jersey in one year, 2019 to 2020, filed 320, 91% of which resulted in the gun being taken away and a life being saved or multiple lives being saved. We filed eight. So one of my sort of wish list things to do is to get get a, a, a coffee with Mayor Wu and say, look, hey, can we get some signs on the subways and like some billboards and like some posters in the schools and doctor's offices? Because this is really important for people to know about. It's it's a safety measure. Um, and it's by no means anti-gun. Um, so that's a conversation. These are topics to kind of I don't know, bring up or think about or toss around with those, um, you know, you care about, um, as well as if you know they happen to be a gun owner, to sort of, you know, just talk with them about, you know, how is it that you make sure with kids in the house or just with people coming in and out that you, you know, your gun's stored or I don't know, those kinds of conversations can be, um, they can be productive and lead to others that might be even more relevant or meaningful. We just have to remember our civility for one another and that we ultimately all want the same thing. Exactly. Hopefully. Exactly right. That's that is absolutely should be the goal. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um uh I wanna before we before we close up, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about activism around gun safety and gun violence prevention. Uh it's such an immense, immensely complicated political and uh, issue. Uh, but how can our kids feel you know, a little less helpless, for example, if they participated as activists. I mean, we know that after uh, Parkland, for example, we had a tremendous amount of activism among young people, uh, supervised, but still activism. Mm -hmm. So are there issues or initiatives that the Center for Gun Violence Prevention promotes? And what activities do you you recommend for kids to, to become involved so that they feel like they're doing something, contributing something, and not being helpless victims. Sure. Um, well, absolutely. And I, I will give a shout out to March for Our Lives. Um, you know, David Hogg is, is local now. He's at Harvard. Um, and in fact, it, it's pretty cool. He is studying the Second Amendment and and really trying to understand the the history behind our country's present day predicament, so to speak, around gun violence. Um, so he's he's local now and he it's done heroes work, that that organization. And they are very um active, alive and well. And there are local March for Lives uh branches and chapters all through the the United States. And so right here in, in Boston, there's um a local chapter. So kids of any age can get involved. And it doesn't mean they have to um, go to all the marches or they have to raise a ton of money. They can simply be kind of, you know, um, involved at the email level or at the writing their um, their representative. You know, kids' letters to the representatives are are unbelievably meaningful and powerful. So just because you can't vote doesn't mean you can't make a difference politically. So those certainly would be some things um, where kids could feel 
perhaps a sense of, you know, um, making a difference, um, even starting like a, a, a peace plan or a peace project at their school, um, you know, a commitment that will work out conflicts that we will not turn to violence um, when we have some, you know, problems with each other or with, you know, family, friends, whatever. Um, peace packs are kind of a common thing that we see kids um, initiating in their in their schools or in their communities. They could volunteer in some of the organizations that directly and indirectly work around or with survivors of gun violence. So the Lewis D. Brown Peace Institute is an amazing group um, organization in Boston that basically supports um, every aspect of families and friends who are grieving and struggling with the loss of a loved one from violence. So volunteering in any way with them. Um, for parents, you know, moms demand action. There's also Every Town. There's um, the Brady Campaign. There's the Sandy Hook Promise. So again, not saying this has to be a money um, getting involved on a money level absolutely can be getting involved on sending out mailings on on showing up showing up to marches or to presentations or again writing to um, your representatives and your politicians legislatures the people who really are going to hopefully represent us where it counts um, right now there is a really big disconnect between what the people of our country want and what the politicians seem to be doing or not doing for us in terms of violence reduction and gun safety so kids adults everybody can really make a difference in that respect by just letting the people who need to know know how we feel and how concerned we are there, there is so much still left to do and there's so much that each of us can do, you know, our young kids, our, our teenagers, and, and, and us as the adults. And, and this has been so incredibly helpful and enlightening to hear that we're not helpless, because sometimes it does feel like with all of this going around, it feels like you kind of feel like, I think maybe Jane said, it, you feel paralyzed, you feel helpless. And this is really um, empowering and enlightening. And I appreciate your time. Is there, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you really feel strongly that we should touch upon before we end? Mm, well, let's. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll shout out that even though our listeners can't see me, I'm wearing orange in honor of June being Gun Violence Awareness Month. Um, and I think it's important to know where that came from, the, the Wear Orange campaign started in honor of Hadia Pendleton. She was a 15-year-old Black teenager um, in the Chicago area who the week before in January of um, 2013, walked in Obama's second inaugural parade and a week later was shot and killed in a playground. So her friends started this campaign of wear orange because it's the color that hunters wear to protect themselves when they're out um, in the woods. So it's just, uh, I think a shout out to this being a month where we wanna really do what we can do and start doing what we're not doing to make a difference with this problem. Cause I know it really affects all of us. We have collective trauma at this point um, and we need to really start taking care of ourselves. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, 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 it's important. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I often go or in the past, I've often gone hiking in the woods and, um, and they're during bow and arrow season as well as gun season. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's very reassuring to see, somebody in orange because right. it, 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 you know, what's going on. You know? Exactly. Uh, and you so wear it, it feels safer. So. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. You know, I, I even got one from my dog in the past. That's smart. Well, so in closing, Gretchen, what's something you're looking forward to this week? All right. So actually 
right after this, I am doing a school nurses training with Northeastern School Nurse Academy program. So there are school nurses in training and we are doing a pretty cool uh, practice run where I we kind of do an overview of a lot of what we've just talked about, but then they get the opportunity to role play and practice conversations with actors that we hire from this amazing program, NECS in Boston, um, so that they can sort of just get their feet wet in trying out how to raise this topic with families and kids and how to manage a range of reactions and responses. So um, that's a two hour training I'm looking forward to actually right after this. Thank you so, so much. I, I really so appreciate uh, your time and the work that you're doing. It's so invaluable. Well, thank you. Likewise to all of you. Seriously, the work you all do. It's not just on this topic. You guys spread your wings wide. So thanks a lot, Gretchen, for, uh, for joining us today. Uh, and thanks, everyone at home for tuning in. We'll see you back here on the next one on the third Thursday of next month. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review. We hope that our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Jean Bresk. And I'm Khadija Booth Watkins. Until next time. I'm going to get out my orange t shirts. Yes. All right. <laughs> Good color on you, Jean. I didn't know that background. That background is really. That's really cool in yeah. terms of the, the reason for the color. Right, right. No, it's it's very it's very meaningful. Yeah. Orange is one of my favorite colors, so I'm excited. I love yeah. it too. I just don't have much. And of course, I have two sweatshirts and it's too hot to wear those. So yeah, <laughs> but an excuse to go shopping. <laughs> yeah.